Hello, welcome to A Geography of Colour, a monthly podcast with a different painter each month talking about their relationship with colour. This month, I'm talking with painter Erin Lawler. Erin is um, a contemporary British painter. She lives and works in London. After receiving her BA in History of Art in 1992 from the Sorbonne University in Paris, Erin lived and worked in France until 2013 when she returned to the UK. Since her first solo show in Paris in 2010, she's exhibited extensively around the world. Recent solo gallery exhibitions have included Earthly Delights at Vigo Gallery, London in 2023, and solo shows at Miles McHenry Gallery, New York City in 2022, at Luca Tomasi in Milan in 2021, and at Fox Jensen McCrory Gallery, Auckland in 2020. In 2017, a survey exhibition of Erin's work, Onomatopoeia, took place at the Rothko Centre, Dagopils, Latvia, and her work was showcased in Malory New Paint Now at the Nikolsberg Glyptotech Museum, Copenhagen, in 2016. Earlier in 2023, Erin had her first institutional exhibition in the UK, Invincible Summer, at Wellington Arch in London, in partnership with Apsley House and English Heritage. In a recent catalogue essay, David Ampham speaks of Lawless paintings as cutting-edge contemporary. Her work nevertheless has roots as deep and distant as Ovid's Metamorphoses, in which being is forever in a state of becoming. Erin's work is in numerous public and private collections, including the Women's Art Collection Cambridge, UK, the Mark Rothko Centre Latvia, and the Colon Museum Collection Seoul. She's represented by Vigo Gallery London, Miles McHenry Gallery New York, Fox Jensen and Fox Jensen McCrory Galleries in Sydney and Auckland, and Luca Tomasi in Milan. Hello Erin, it's really nice to be here today in your studio and thanks for agreeing to talk about colour with me. Thank you Ruth, thank you so much for coming. I think as you know um, I am very largely self-taught as a painter. I slightly hesitate, I mean, it's very much in quotes that, that expression self-taught in the sense that, I mean, apart from the fact that it's virtually impossible to be really an outsider artist in this day and age with as much visual information out there and online, um, but also because I, I, I studied um, art history and archaeology. I, I just mean by the self-taught bit that I didn't actually go to art school. So <laughs> I in many ways probably came initially to painting, well, I painted and drew all through my childhood um, and the creative impulse was very much always there, but my child, throughout my childhood and younger years I was very much oscillating between painting and writing and doing both and, and was very undecided as to which way to go and certainly painting wasn't something that was seen as a anyway a viable career or even being quite academic as something that was that was encouraged beyond beyond being a hobby. Just you, you went to the Sorbonne, I think. Yes. Well, I was supposed to be studying English literature. Um, went to Paris for a year off, and then decided not to come back, and then switched to art history and archaeology because obviously I wasn't going to do English literature there. So I. Um, sort of looped back round and it really was after four years of sitting on the benches at the Sorbonne looking at looking at painting that I um, really felt that 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 you know that impulse come to the fore again to paint myself but also also perhaps I'd come to the idea that there was I think I think part of my reticence about art school apart from not being necessarily encouraged in that direction was also not knowing if or what I had to say when I was 17 or 18, whereas by the time I'd sat through those four years of art history and moved countries and all the rest, I I certainly um, felt a beginning of an idea of somewhere that I might go with painting that that hadn't been there prior. And that was very much about about oil paint and um, that thread running through art history. I think, you know, the people who the painters who fascinated me the most were and felt and felt most relevant still and where there was a sort of fertile ground to go were no doubt late Rembrandt, late Titian, sorry, we're not in chronological chronological <laughs> order, Titian, Rembrandt, um, but then running through Soutine to Auerbach. And it really was those painters who were using oil paint in a way that that 
again, seemed particularly fertile to me and like there was somewhere to go with that, that sort of extraordinary magic of oil paint, the way it can just in a brush mark capture volume and light and, and even the colour can, can change according to not just the lighting of it but the direction in which you look at it. It's something very, very alive as a medium. So I started painting again really um, really for and through oil paint and, and those sort mm. of... Uh, painters those works marking the way I would go back to the I, kept, I hung on to my art history card for a year or two because um, you had to pay in Paris to get into museums and mm. queue and it was a way of queue cutting but not paying as well and so in lieu of going to art school I would go to the to the Louvre and to the Pompidou Centre and I would you know cut the queues and go straight in and spend 20 minutes in front of Rembrandt's beef carcass or or Giacometti's portrait of Jean Genet, kind of trying to understand as much as I could and sort of absorb, you know, the, the, the best of some bits of painting before rushing to the studio to try and figure things out in That's there. fascinating, really. So you're using, you know, the old masters in a way as, yes. your, as your guides. as my teachers. Yes. <laughs> and, again, I hesitate to say self-taught because in many ways I had, you know, the best teachers there are across the centuries absolutely. to look at. And again, it's, you have to remember it's days before pre-internet, so we were very dependent then on what was local and locally available to look at you know, in Absolutely. real life. Um, a, a lot of the books were in black and white probably then as well. Yes, a lot of the books were in black and white, but again, there was you weren't seeing what was happening, you know, online or easy access. You know, it was a question of going to libraries to look at things, but also going to museums. And obviously both the Pompidou Centre and the Louvre were my kind of, you know, close to home. Yeah, and you were working things. quite figuratively then, I think. Yes, in the first 10 years I was working very figuratively. Um, I was very much looking back to the School of London, but also as... So being self-taught, I was, um, and trying to learn how to use oil paint, there was sort of this sense to me that the face was this, both both very elemental, but also a very complex volume, and that it was a good place to start to try and sort of master that um, in terms of painting, um, well, volume and, and, and background, and figuring out the relationship between the two. I was probably... I mean, then and, and still now, again, it's something that, that, that has run through my work, this, this difference between being interested in sort of all over and, and, and almost, almost colour field, but, but bringing shape out of that. A lot of the artists who interested me at the time were the School of London artists, but also them leading back to Giacometti and Fautrier and the way they would look to the School of Paris painters, many of whom were also sculptors or primarily sculptors. So there was this line, this very sort of, you know, vague line between painting and sculpting and that sense of, of volume through paint. Mm. Again, one of my first fascinations with paint was this, this what Pierre Kierkeby calls, the, you know, the, the innate trickery of painting, the dishonesty of it. It is all about that trickery of two volumes out of three. And, mm. and that is what, at the same time, fascinated me and still does. So, but because of that, I would say, sorry, just to, to come to the, the colour aspect of that, I think because of that, um, but also just because of dealing with those questions of volume and matter and, and material, like I sort of almost um, removed colour from the equation. And I mean, obviously, that's something that various people have done throughout the history of art, you know, know to be most, probably most well known are the, sort of the cubists, the way they sort of, you know, took colour out of the mix while they were figuring out the, the, the perspective and volume and, and space questions. And in many ways, that was sort of the same thing I was doing, which is, I think, what a lot of the School of London painters did. You know, Giacometti certainly was, you know, a huge influence on, on many of them. And, um, yeah, there was that tendency to go to either a bit grey or quite sludgy brown, but I was sort of grappling with, as I say, questions of, of volume and material rather than colour mm. per se at that time the colour as it crept in was quite incidental or was really about trying to get something right rather than any symbolism or or letting myself go to that pleasure of colour even I would say which is almost something I'd sort of forbidden myself from going towards for quite a long time just when I was sort of dealing with the rest there was also and people I think perhaps don't don't sort of mention this enough there was also the question of cost um, uh, you know, I remember reading all sorts of things about Auerbach and Kossoff and the way, you know, a lot of the working in blacks and greys and browns was, and whites was, was also to do with the cost of the colours. 
Yeah. Because uh, those are, I mean, the, the, the you know the, the umbers and the, they're all the cheaper, cheaper. pigments. <laughs> and if you're going to be using them in any quantity, which at the time I was working very small but very thick, so there was still quite a lot of quantity of paint involved. And uh, yes, I, I was certainly wasn't daring um, either visually but nor financially to go and buy tubes of cadmium. <laughs> what, what, how did the change from figuration to abstraction come about? In some ways, it was it, it was both a radical and a slow change. I think it was quite radical in the sense that it, there was suddenly a sense of urgency to me that I needed to let go of these figures and um, start opening up. It, there was a time, a, a point at which it just felt both very obsessive, but also I felt as if I was going around in circles by you know repeatedly painting these 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 same figures and in the same format, and I felt. I felt a need to sort of break out, both break away from the figures, um, but also start exploring that space around the figures more. And, but from that point on, I mean, there was a terrifying period, about two or three years, where I knew I had to let go of that, but I had no idea where I was going. Um, and it was really during those two, three years that little by little, I started accepting that it was that brush mark that really fascinated me and where that could go and, and in a more abstract way how that could just create volume and space that didn't necessarily need to be literally hung on a, a head or a figure. Yeah. Um, I was in those in those years I was probably looking both at Pierre Kirkaby a lot and Joan Mitchell, who was um, the only female abstract painter working large format in France around that time. Mm. I mean she she'd actually died about ten years previously, but she was certainly someone who we were very aware of in Paris and whose work you would see. But I think as much as I adored and still adore both of their work, I feel it's very, very strong. Kirkaby is so much tied to, to the ground and the earth and the strata and the layers and Mitchell so much to trees and landscape. I still always had the sense that there was something about the, the human body or bodies that that was more my subject than mm. than either land or landscape. So did the change in scale come gradually as well? It did over those years. As I started working more and more loosely, I started dil- diluting the paint more and more with with terps at that time. And as I diluted it, I started working horizontally. That was again one of those shifts that was a huge shift in the work. I didn't realise all the implications of it at the time. I probably still haven't realised quite all the implications of it. Um, But that was, you know, for technical reasons, obviously the paint being very liquid, it made sense to move on to the ground or or to horizontal and be working horizontally. That then led to all sorts of other changes. But but once I was working horizontally, there was sort of not much, apart from my own physical reach, stopping me from going bigger and from working with bigger brushes and working more and more loosely, so that that was a you know a gradual shift over over several years. I'd say probably that that transformation really was over three years in all. Um, you know, since then the work has has evolved, but in in a sort of less you know in more log- in a more logical direction, I would say. But again, there was um, first of all when I was started working larger, I was trying to bring in more color, but I was really really struggling with bringing in more color because even if I'd let go of the head, there was still a lot to figure out in terms of space and volume and composition that I was still working through. So there was then really probably a period of three, four years when I was working almost monochrome or sort of two colours anyway, sort of, but it was a, you know, very much a background and a foreground. But again, that sort of big shift had probably been working completely sort of starting off in a colour field way it was really covering the whole canvas and then and then working sort of all over rather than previously where I'd had this central figure or face. And, and were you still working in France then? Yes I was yeah. still in France then I only moved back to the UK 10 years ago so yes all those years I was working in France um, and those um, but those those very abstract works that were very much about the brush mark um, very much meta painting, um, and as I say, quite quite cold and grey in what colour there was, but really you know monochrome or just two colours most of the time, quite reduced palette. Um, those were the works I probably started exhibiting really in about 2012, 2013, 
um, oh, probably from 2010 onwards. Yeah, I think 2010 was my first uh, solo exhibition in Paris of those works. And then very shortly after that, I started exhibiting both in Germany and the US. Um, which, um, interestingly enough, the Germans sort of understood what I was doing as a form of radical painting, um, with really the material being the root, which feels very right to me, actually. Yes. Um, and in the US, there was sort of some understanding of my work as a form of abstract expressionism, so that they were much more welcoming to my work at that stage than, than any response I was getting locally, which yeah. was still really um, very anti-painting at the time in terms of the art world. Yes, and similarly, there was quite a lot of anti-painting yes. in the UK as well. Yes. And that tighter figuration, which yes. I think still exists, really. Yes, well, except the global art market does seem very avid figuration <laughs> painting yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah, so there was, again, very reductive in terms of colour around that time. I... The, the, the bringing bringing back more colour into my work really did that that shift um, sort of did take place around the same time as I moved back to London, which I think confused various of the people I was working with at the time because they kind of assumed that moving back to what's what's notoriously a um, you know a greyer country than <laughs> than further south that 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 should bring the colour to wake up I think I think confused a few people. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I'd say I, I mean I'd say several things on that point. To start with, I actually think there's an extraordinary light in England um, and and ever changing skies in the sense that there perhaps aren't in Paris. It's not as if I was living you know on the south of France and having these extraordinary blue yeah. skies to work with. Um, it was quite a grey place, Paris, um, but it was also quite. I think it really corresponded quite simply to a moment where I, I was gaining confidence in my visual language and feeling that I was. You know, confident enough in that language, having sort of done my my scales in some ways for all those years prior to yeah, start yeah. Um, bringing in well, to start really really not just well making sentences or songs even out of out of out of that language and to start bringing in um, more relief, more colour, more complexity, and I think that has been sort of the main arc of where my work has gone since. Has yes, been. that kind of the mixture of the gesture. Uh, and and colour is yes. a kind of primary to your work. It is, it? yes, it is now, mm. yes, yeah. And um, it's interesting how they've become more bodily because they're on the ground, mm. um, you know, that you do get that feeling of, um, you know, the movement and you probably moving around them as well. Yes, no, absolutely. Mm. There's something, again, as, as I said, the body has always been important to me and in some ways that has become almost, yeah, that, that, that way of working has, I hope, something that is transmitted in, 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 in the final work. But, I mean, I, I hesitate to say performative in the sense that I don't, I don't paint performatively or in front of other people, but I think there is, uh, you know, clearly such a link between the way I work and the resulting work that, that is there. And yes, as, as we said before, the fact that the stretch, my, my own reach is, is the physical limit of the size of the canvases has meant that, that is, there is that sort of sense of the bodily and the one-to-one. And I have also continued um, almost exclusively working in portrait format, uh, however abstract the work has become. Um, yeah, that's interesting because you join portraits together in diptychs and triptychs. That's again, that's been a more recent shift. It was about four or five years ago. I think it was, well, it was 2017 when I did the exhibition at the Rothko Centre in Latvia that I wanted to work larger than you know my 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 scale permitted, and um, the logical way of working around that that question of reach was to start multiplying the canvases and working with diptychs and triptychs. At the time, I think it's done larger. Um, but yes, it, it's brought back in that 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 play of of the landscape format as well. But at the same time, I like the fact that that both of those formats are present within the same work. There is still the double play between portrait format and landscape format, and sort of obliges the brain to switch between the two one while looking yes, at the work yeah. rather than because I mean my why why I've stayed away from landscape format mainly is is that sense both for myself and of the viewer of soon as something is just in horizontal format is trying to, to read it or express it as a landscape and, and you know, that, that thing of looking for a horizon line and 
the way the brain sort of inevitably does when something's horizontal. Mm, it kind of shortcuts it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It forces the mind to go somewhere a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a bit about your process, because I know you work a la prima, don't you? Yes, well, in, in the final instance anyway, I do put down a first few layers of colour which have to dry first. Those are as, as, as smooth as possible. Um, that's more about, because I'm working a la prima and with quite liquid paint afterwards, not dragging back into to the white of the canvas. I do um, want something down. And that first layer does have, have its importance in terms of... Um, Obviously, with oil paint, there is that that sensitivity of the pigment that comes through. But it's also, um, I used to, when I was first working that way, I would start with very, very bright grounds and then progressively darken them. I, in recent years, I've tended to sort of reverse that tendency. And usually now I start from quite a dark ground mm. and then work lighter on top of it. It's... Um, it's interesting to me because I mean it is so much. I've been talking recently a lot about that, you know, dichotomy of life, death, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the exhibitions I've just done at Wellington Arch and and, and Vigo Gallery, but um, that sense of, of 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 light coming out of dark, and it, it sort of really occurred to me that that is actually just the fundamentals of painting. Anyway, there is no light without dark or dark without light. You know, <laughs> one you, you know one requires the other in order to exist um and so yes certainly in recent years the tendency would be to start with quite a dark ground whether it's a, a you know a, a, an umber or or a or a you know a very a dark dark blue i have to be a bit careful with the uh very you know the very cold colors just because well certainly certain blues can be very strong and can therefore be quite difficult to work with afterwards mm. you know however dry they seem they can yes and it's they, a, it's they also dry much more slowly I mean and you, you, you know your pigments it's obviously the advantage of a sort of a burnt umber is that actually as a background paint it actually you know dries relatively fast and, yeah. and it's quite stable and at the same time while it it's a darkness nor is it it's not it's not a black either or you know it does it, it has a slight warmth to it even so but doesn't interfere too much with what comes afterwards yeah, and you're using quite big brushes. Yes, I am using quite big brushes. Um, I was when I was in France using these big brushes from uh, Maison Marin in Arcueil, which are their own brand that they make. They go up to one meter in wow. width. I've always found really forty, fifty centimeters is the maximum in terms of having the right amount of control in the gesture. Um, also the weight on the wrist. <laughs> I think most painters end up with repetitive strain injury at some point. No, it's a repetitive strain. Um, in, when I moved to, to, to London, I couldn't get hold of those so easily, so I started working with wallpapering brushes from Leyland. Unfortunately, they've just stopped making those, so who knows where I'll go next. I have a few left. Mm. Um, I, what I like about those wallpapering brushes is both the thickness of the bristle because it does leave the brush mark quite apparent yeah. um, but also the fact of them that the handle that they have allows quite a lot of control they're about 30 centimetres wide I think so that's already quite quite a good size to go with so I tend to work with a mixture of those and still the big brushes from, from, from Maison Marin in France mm. Are you still mixing with them? Um... Terps or no, I had to stop working with terps quite early on in the process of working in this more liquid way because obviously the amount of uh, fumes was uh, quite consequential. I ended up very fast developing a terps allergy, which is something oh. that happens to a lot of painters, I think, mm. as well. Um, I've tried a variety of things over the years and still sometimes work with uh, shell sol or you know some of the terps. Um, replacement things that are slightly less toxic most of the time though i work with very good quality white spirit these days um it's actually something that is um it's quite pure in a way because it's basically almost entirely evaporates and therefore leaves 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 the pigment you know the paint behind it does however tend to render the paint more matte than people are used to with oil um and it can slightly deaden the colours, so it also requires a slight upping of contrast. Um, in any case, even I mean, even with terps, but all the more so with 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 other solvents, 
thinning the paint as much as I do does require working with paints that have a good pigment load. Yeah, other particular manufacturers that you use? Um, I really... Uh, it depends on the certain, certain manufacturers for certain colours. I used to really, really love the Atlantis own brand, which was actually really good quality paint. Um, and I really liked the, 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 the sort of the not substance, was the texture of it. It was, it was, uh, and and they were really, really good quality. Uh, unfortunately, they stopped making those. I've since switched to mainly for the cadmiums. I like Jackson's Professional own brand. Um, some colours I use from Michael Harding, the, the, the bright green lake in particular. I do sometimes use their, their cadmiums, but I actually prefer the Jackson's professional ones, just in terms of this very slight difference in colour that's there. Um, so, I mean, from, for, for, the, for the basic colours, the titanium whites, um, which when I'm using them for mixing, they don't necessarily have to be you know, that great quality. I mean, I just do still use the Jackson's for quite a lot but also quite simply the Georgian um, oils for for just mixes are you know good good enough yeah, yeah. Um, and as I say I need quite you know quite quite good strong sort of pigments for those those pigments that require obviously the cadmiums are the obvious one where you know you know any any amount of cadmium hue is not going to do the same thing as actual cadmium genuine mm. um, which I mean, anything that's hue is just going to disappear in the solvent, solvent, and leave leave nothing behind. Um, but otherwise, it really for the for the blues and the pinks, it's more a question of um, usually I'm using as sort of the colour in them ultramarine blue and quinacridone pink, both of which I mix with varying amounts of titanium white to give enough body to them. Yeah, because. Um, Particularly that quinacridone pink. As much as I love the colour of it, it's actually quite um, it's, it's quite transparent on its own. Yeah, it can. Uh, and are, are you disappear. working with the? Tr- I'm thinking that you are working with the transparency of the colours as you build up the. the yes, I don't know. If it's transparency so much mm. as the mixing of them. Mm. I mean, it's it, because as I say, once those layers are down, I'm then working. Um, I am working a la prima and it's wet on wet so it really is a question of whether or not it's transparent it's a question of working on on, on the mixing of the colours as the painting builds up Mm. over layers but yes it's layers and layers and and, um, working the colours over over each other but also with a quite a thick bristle of brush as I say it's also dragging into the other layers so it is um, there is again something quite sculptural about that way of working I'm working not just you know it's not just a question of juxtaposition or even superposition it is a question of 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 bringing the the different layers into each other and you know working it has a feeling almost of a dance it is yeah i mean certainly it's no doubt feels feels like that in the making of it um and and it feels quite intuitive is there any room for color theory or planning I I feel like I should know more about colour theory, but I really don't. Um, I mean, I did, you know, I inevitably read my my Albus um, later in life, but I certainly didn't come to painting with any great knowledge of colour theory. Again, I'd sort of approached it completely from the other end of the spectrum. Obviously, in in art history, we tend to analyse colour in terms of its symbolic use or... um, Rather than, I mean, we also do in terms of its its compositional use, but 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 not in terms of, of how to. I mean, it, re- it really is where it's two ends of a, a telescope. Really, I mean, art history is so much about analysis, painting is so much about synthesis. Yes, <laughs> it's yeah. sort of the opposite <laughs> thing to be doing. Again, maybe I would have cut some corners if I had learned more about colour theory or taken some art classes earlier on. But I, I think I took the route I needed to take personally, and I think I'm also quite stubborn and quite quite a loner. So my yeah. my way was the way I was going anyway. Well, um, it's, it's, very, it's very personal, isn't it? Which it is, is very personal. Which yeah. is what you want in your work. You know, it's your voice. I mean, what was interesting to me is some years after I um, started painting, I did read. I started reading more about how other artists work, and particularly certain painters who were very good at the colour theory side of things. And I realised that I'd come round to instinctively working 
in the same sort of order as they were anyway, starting mm. with the one ground and then probably, you know, with, with the warmer colours and then the cooler colours and then and that actually some artists I knew who were very strong on colour theory were very deliberately doing that, whereas it's something I had sort of, through trial and error over many years and messing up an awful lot of paintings, I'd sort of got there in the end on my own. So, so <laughs> as an art historian, you were kind of learning about colour symbolically. Does, does colour have a... Do you use colour symbolically in your paintings, do you think? Um, I'm, I'm sure I do. I'm not sure how conscious it is. In some ways, those that, that symbolic thing often goes through the filter of art history in the sense that I can be, even then, subconsciously thinking of certain painters or paintings and when that evoke to me a certain mood and therefore heading in that direction. Um, so it's sort of through, through a filter. I, I think in the last four or five years, uh, one of the artists who surprised me by creeping into the studio was Caravaggio, and, and actually quite early Caravaggio, not just the late, later Caravaggio. And those reds, I don't know if those, you know, the, that working with those reds in that way, whether for me it's directly symbolic or whether it is, I mean, it's certainly in my mind linked to a certain period of kind of Roman painting <laughs> in late Renaissance, whereas um, those the paler reds that were more 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 used in frescoes are more linked in my mind to, 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 the, to the Italian primitives and earlier Renaissance paintings. So it, it's strange because things often go through a filter. I certainly... There's a certain shade of blue, and, and blue is probably my favourite colour if I had to choose one. Um, but why would you? Um, <laughs> um, there's certainly a certain tone of blue that I very much associate with Matthew Wong, which is quite—I mean, it's quite funny because that's much more recent art history, of course. But yeah. but I realised that I, in, in the week after his death, that I was—I I painted a series of paintings that were all with that really vibrant blue, and I suddenly realised that I was in my mind into in dialogue and in homage to, to Matthew, who's someone who, who I had been with in dialogue with online over many, many years. Um, so it is funny how certain colours become associated with things. And I know, he, you know his last exhibition, when he, well, just, just after his death, was called Blue, and, and it, the whole show was, was that vibrant shade of blue. But it, it also made me realise that I'd, you know, some things that I'd almost forgotten about, about the importance of colour uh, growing up without even necessarily realizing it, and that one of my, I think one of my first really, really strong reactions to, I mean, absolutely visceral reactions to to, to a painting exhibition, was the exhibition of um, Hockney paints the stage oh. at um, was it the Haywood? I think I, I, mean, I can't remember where it was. I mean, it was I was mm. in my early teens. I think it was. Yeah. I was in my early teens and would have come up to London to see it. And there was that one room. Um, I don't know if it was the Magic Flute. It was anyway, but it was that that one room where they'd recreated this incredibly vibrant blue scenography with with red trees. And I walked into that room and absolutely, I mean, it was kind of. You know, it, it was almost like an epiphany sort of for me. But I, mean, I don't, didn't quite know what I was experiencing. But I sat in that room for over half an hour, just absolutely, you know, it was like being high on, on drugs or something. <laughs> it was just so extraordinary way, the way those colours communicated themselves. And, you know, I wouldn't have myself down as a particular Hockney fan in, in, in many ways. He's not, you know, someone whose work I've been fascinated with particularly. I do think he's an extraordinary colourist. And even the more recent show I saw... Um, wherever that was, the RA or somewhere a few years ago, it really struck me, um, again, you know, his extraordinary use of colour, but also looking around the rooms while I was going, while I was in that show, I was realising how many people were just smiling, but the fact that those vibrant colours literally can, you know, people weren't even realising that they were grinning, but they were, you know, there is that really direct emotional response to certain colours. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as I say, I was only really remembered that in some ways quite quite recently that I'd had that experience in that Hockney room <laughs> yeah it's quite interesting how these colour memories mm. are kind of almost bodily yes visceral and you can tap into them you know I've got memories from being quite a young you know yes. quite a young child but 
It's like this, very sensory, I think. Absolutely. No, and that's... Um, but again, that's, you know, I, I'm very instinctive in my way of using colour these days. But certainly, you know, back to the bodily thing again, as we were talking about something that, that uh, my way of working is extremely immersive now. And it suddenly, you know, reminded me of that experience in the Hockney Room, which was, you know, by its, the very way it was sort of put together, was immersive. It was an immersive experience of, of colour, but also that visceral thing. Um, the exhibition I did at, at the Rothko Centre was called Onomatopoeia, and that was to me very much about that painting being good painting being akin to a visual onomatopoeia in the sense that it doesn't necessarily require precise analysis. It is something that can express something very deep and sometimes quite precise, but 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 in a way that as I say, it doesn't require analysis. It's almost visceral. It hits the nervous system. A, a bit like it, music, uh, music yeah, maybe. As, as, that, absolutely. Um, just, it kind of create, can create yeah. a mood or a feeling within you without yeah. having to have words that explain it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that, and that is something that, that, that sort of feels important to me. I mean, back to the immersive thing, one of my other first sort of visual memories, really, that again came back to me recently. I was in Walthamstow for, for some, something else and dropped by the William Morris Museum there and suddenly sort of had a flashback to the fact that I was surrounded by William Morris wallpaper in my bedroom for the first five years of my life. <laughs> and, and that it had had this... It suddenly, it suddenly made me realise why I've always had quite such a fascination with um, Morris Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are because I think that wallpaper really served to me as a as a space of projection yeah. again it's something completely immersive it was it was these entangled sort of branches and leaves and foliage but it was somewhere something that I was surrounded by but that I could project myself into in that way yes um, yeah. I suppose you inhabit these spaces yes don't you? and maybe the same with your paintings you know, I, I, I hope so and again it made me realize that subconsciously these are probably directions I've been looking to go in in my painting you know, without necessarily, I'd say it suddenly really did strike me within 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 a matter of weeks, both that memory of the Hockney and the William Morris. I think, but of course, they were both these immersive experiences, and that is something that no doubt I have been sort of seeking to reproduce. In, yes, because in it's, it's interesting, you know, the, <laughs> what abstract painting can do because yeah. um, it can take you on a journey, and not necessarily somewhere physical but somewhere within yeah. so it's reaching within um, the viewer yeah as well as probably the artist <laughs> painting <laughs> yes because when I say it's about uh, you know that where my, it's somewhere that I've been no doubt intending to go subconsciously in terms of the work it's also in terms of doing the work I mean because first and foremost for me there is you know how essential that is to be fully engaged in what I am doing in the studio and for it to interest me and for me to engage with it every day as I have now done for 30 odd years. <laughs> uh, so I, I, mean, I won't say that the end result is incidental, but it, it, it certainly, you know, I mean, yes, it's a byproduct of, of what in any case is engaging me here. Yeah, yeah, there's also that double thing of, 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 of what I am projecting, you know, painting is a space of projection and what I am projecting onto the canvas, but then also an awareness that putting the work out into the world as, as, as I do now and have done for quite some time, that other people are going to also project onto it and bring their baggage to it. Um, and for me, it is important that the works be quite open images in that sense and that yes. there be space for projection. Yes, and everyone can bring their own individual mm. experience. Yeah. And you've just had two really successful shows at um, Vigo Galleries. Do you want to say a little bit about those? Um, yes, it, it was wonderful well, to finally be showing in, in, in London after all, all these years of showing elsewhere and not. But also to have actually those two pendants at the same time, those two exhibitions, um, felt like a real you know, a real privilege as a way to show the work. Um, what also felt very serendipitous is there was the, you know, the proposition to do an exhibition at Wellington Arch, which is a, a strange space, um, quite low ceilings, quite strange volumes. And I think it was a police station in the 50s, 
for, for a short while, uh, giving, as it does, onto Constitution Hill and you know, Buckingham Palace. It's going to make sense. Um, but it is, you know, it's a victory arch, and so very the connotation is, is obviously with war, but also with peace. And it, that, again, that dichotomy really interested me. I mean, it feels to me sort of the essence of not, not just painting, but life. It's, it, you know, there is no life without death and, you know, war, war and war and peace go equally sort of hand in hand. Um, and you used the Camus, a piece from Camus. Yes, there was a, a, a quote that, I mean, we were all coming out of the pandemic anyway, but I, I was also coming out of some you know, health problems myself that were quite severe. And I came across this Camus quote, which was, you know, in the depths of winter, I finally found within myself an invincible summer. So again, that, you know, that notion of no, no light without dark, no, but and no dark without light, but also, yeah, the, 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 the seasons, but, but the looking within as well. Um, it's something that felt very, you know, pertinent to me in terms of my own sort of near-death experience just, just prior to, to putting together that show and a way in which I was working anyway, but also in a victory arch, which has within it that, that notion of both war and peace. Yes. Um, to, to, to bring that to the fore. So the works in Wellington Arch were very much about, about, about the darkness, but also the light out of darkness. The first, the, the earliest work in the show is called After the Storm. Um, and it was very much about light breaking through, breaking through darkness. Um, and then there was a work called Battle, which, um, was, very much about about movement but, and life as much as life as much as battle and life as much as death. But uh, in terms of the colour, was no doubt harking back to to Uccello and some of the uh, again the Italian painters. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the 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 title piece of the show, Invincible Summer, was a four panel work that um, I think was probably the, the the large work where I've pushed the chromatic range more than ever before in my work mm. and I, but as I said it was, it would, that was a painting I really did paint just after coming out of um, you know, cancer lobectomy <laughs> cardiac arrest um, I painted that painting on the other side of that and, and it's, it's very powerful isn't it that painting I hope so I don't I mean I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm well placed to <laughs> to, well, I thought to, that... to say, I mean, I, I put it out there. Um, uh, I, you know, it felt an achievement to me to, to paint that work. That was something very much about, you know, the life drive, something very visceral, something very much about, um, the, you know, it was a belligerence, it was a, a carpe diem sort of sense, but also a belligerence of, you know, literally, if, if it's the last thing I do, you know, <laughs> this is my statement to the world. Yeah, it is about life. Uh, well, it, but also the whole show had that. Mm. Um, real um, feeling of energy and mm. um, overcoming, I think, you know, that the uh, the paintings had a real um, positive force in them. Thank and you. And coming out that. of those, some of those dark grounds as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so again, that's where sort of, um, you know, painting through the mirrors, mirrors light, there is that, that, that in the way of working, as I say, the, the colour and the light coming out of dark these days is... Uh, um, are there any um, colours that you find difficult to put together? I've realised recently that I do certainly tend to stay away from, as I, as I slightly mentioned earlier, some of the blues, um, Prussian blue, because of the way I work and it, all, it being about having to sort of mix the colours and work in them wet, you know, a Prussian blue is going to be, it, it's very hard to use it and it not start interfering with absolutely yeah. everything it can really yeah it's quite strong isn't yeah it? yeah and uh, then it can really pollute <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the canvas but now i'm trying to open up more and more i've realized recently that i you know perhaps don't use enough green i don't know why i've sort of set green aside but i mean i think there was quite a range within that exhibition because to slightly finish on the theme of the two exhibitions i just did the 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 last paintings you see walking out of the Wellington Arch were, were, the, were the ones with the, the strong pinks. Um, one of those, Cupid Baby, was very much um, a tongue-in-cheek take on the Bronzino painting in the National Gallery. I mean, it was yeah. very, very freely inspired by that. Just, I mean, it was just when I started painting it, and that, that pink and that blue really reminded me of the Bronzino. Um, and, and there's another very sort of fleshy pink painting called Hot Mess, 
um, they, they were sort of leading into the show that was on at Vigo that was called Earthly Delights um, in sort of that other pendant, as I say, after, after, or after or alongside death, there is life and there is sensuality and the pleasures of the flesh. And I you know, was thinking very much as well of something Nick Willing said about that, that his father, Victor Willing, had always said that Baroque and Rococo had come out of the plague eras. And, and you know, in a general, I mean, he said that to me just before the pandemic when I saw him, and I, and I obviously thought of that through the pandemic. But there was certainly that, again, that, that, that sense, I think, that happens on a personal level, but most recently has happened also on a collective level of when you are close to death, that those are the times you feel most, most alive or most aware of, yeah. of, of life. And, um, and certainly those, you know, those, those, those pinks and oranges are for me, that, you know, they're the fleshy colours, they're the colours of, of, of the pleasures of the flesh um, and something that is very much about I think they're such a joyous combination yes. as well. I mean, pinks yes. and oranges. Yes, absolutely. So it was, you know, a deliberate sort of uh, contrast with those those two sort of things. It was there was sort of almost as, as much as there ever is in my work in that Wellington Art Show, sort of narrative running through from the the storm paintings and the battle through to Invincible Summer, and then, as I say, Pleasures of the Flesh, leading into you know Earthly Delights paintings that were up in Vigo, and I think were were. You know, much more probably the most the brightest paintings I've ever done in terms of you know, really upping the colour and going with the pleasure of that. Um, I uh, I mean obviously within that title Earth Delights there's also that dichotomy because obviously it's referenced the Hieronymus Bosch painting which well while it's about delights and pleasures is also about the hellscape. Yes. <laughs> so again there's always the dark next to the light. It's, it's interesting how that <laughs> art history sort of underpins yes. your work and yet your work is so far away from those times that you're talking of. Yes. But um, I, I can completely see with the colours that you've mentioned and sometimes in your paintings I think, oh, a Titian sky. Yes. You know, or or uh, yes. Diana or, you know, there'll be something about the colour, I think. Yes, that, no, absolutely. That resonates. Yeah. Yes, when I, I mean, I, I, I did a couple of residencies in LA and uh, a few years ago, and it, it kind of made me laugh because one of the galleries who kept saying, coming to see me then kept saying to me, your, your, your palette is so European. <laughs> <laughs> and despite the, despite the California skies, I was still, <laughs> I think, harking back to, I mean, you can't leave your, where you come from behind entirely anyway but no uh, and I, I think probably the colors within isn't it even mm. though you've got the you have got the um uh effect of the sky or mm. the light you know there is something about color i think comes out without us it's in shoes yes we don't always we're not choosing to always put this color against that no no but virtually i mean i i, I you know as much as possible, set aside that sort of conscious thought when I step into the studio, and certainly when I'm at that you know stage of working a la prima, you know, it's back to that old Gustin thing of leaving yourself at the door. I um, certainly find you know now it's the, the way of working it is is it's extremely intuitive in terms of what you know what what colours. I tend to prepare all my colours in advance because working as I do with these big tubs of kind of quite liquid paint. And certain, you know, certain mixes, I mean, I'll quite often have three tubs of different blues, you know, the different levels of how much, you know, yeah. um, and, and the pink's the same, but but other, otherwise, for the pure colours, the cadmiums are the ones that I'm taking directly from the tube, you know, they have, each have their own tub. So I tend to prepare all those in advance, so I'm not having to sort of stop and think, oh, I need this now. You know, I'm trying to get into quite a free flow state, you know, stream of consciousness kind of way yeah. of painting once yeah. I'm... Once I'm doing it, you set the stage, uh, yeah. as it were. Really. Yes, yeah. no, absolutely. And you're so. also working on a smaller scale now. Yes, um, I've always worked on the smaller ones oh, as well as the mm. big ones. That's not new. No, it's kind of on, almost on the contrary. I think you know the, <laughs> the if there is a direction of travel in, in, in recent years, it's been towards more and more of the bigger works. I've been pleasantly yeah. surprised at the uh, the way they've been. Uh, you know, greeted around the world in various places and gone out to live their lives, the larger ones. Um, for a long time, I was working quite small just because that's where, you know, there was um, both because I had a very small studio, but also that was what people were interested in as well. You know, it's, 
D- d- does it make any difference in terms of colour, the size of the painting? It, it does It does slightly, or at least until recently it has done, in the sense that I think until recently I've been wary of putting in too much very bright colour on the larger surfaces because it can be a bit overwhelming. Um, it's easier to sort of go quite pop almost in the colours, colours and, but also in the mood of a painting when it's something small or medium. Um, there's always that sort of oscillation again between sort of the romantic and the pop, dare I say. You know? um, but I think, again, I think there's maybe a shift going on there, you know, because that the, the very last painting I produced um, was the, the diptych Earthly Delights in the Vigo Gallery show, and that was actually quite... Um, yeah, there's probably more contrast and more colour in that for a large painting than I've... Yeah. You know, and let's say prior to that, just prior to that, was, you know, the Invincible Summer... Quadriptic. Um, so yeah, I think I think more colour is coming in even in the bigger ones now. It's, uh, again, question sure. of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got plans? Plans for the future? Um, things coming up? Or? Plans for the future? I've just completed a commission that I can't say too much about. <laughs> um, I very. I mean, the next the next things really. I will be showing with uh, Fox Jensen and Fox Jensen McCrory. Hopefully, at some time before the end of this year, in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, I've been working Brilliant. with them for some years now, <laughs> and I think next spring I'll be showing with Luca Tomasi in Milan again. It's, uh, yeah. And speaking of color and light, that's uh, yeah, somewhere. Um, I love showing in Milan just because I, I love going to Milan just because the colour is so extraordinary. And you see, I mean, in, in Milan, perhaps more than, well, I don't know, most of northern Italy, you do see that, you have that sense of the pigments all around you, just, I mean, there's yeah. reasons why they're called, you know, Siena. Absolutely. The colours of, of all those um, pigments are just everywhere <laughs> around you, so... Yeah, another immersive yeah. experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks very much, Erin. It's been really interesting to hear about your relationship with colour. Thank you very much. Thanks to Erin for such a fascinating insight into her relationship with colour. I'd also like to thank Stuart Bowditch for editing the podcast, Arts Council England for supporting it through a Develop Your Creative Practice grant, and Contemporary British Painting an artist-led organisation that I'm a member of, for helping to publicise it. Thank you for listening. A Geography of Colour is a monthly podcast with a new painter each month talking about their relationship with colour. Do follow it in your podcast player and share it with your friends. You can follow A Geography of Colour and Erin Lawler on Instagram. You can follow Contemporary British Painting at Paint Britain and sign up to their newsletter to receive more information. More information on the podcast can be found on my website and there are credits that uh, you can read in the podcast app or on SoundCloud. Thank you.